Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not ask for the sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So here, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray together. Father God, for, for you alone, our soul waits. Our hope is from you. You are our rock and our fortress. We shall not be shaken. God, tune our hearts to your word this morning and shape us by your spirit into your image. God, let your glory resound from the walls of this church as we worship you. God, let our lives, once we leave this space, just be an offering to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning. A lot of people for Labor Day. I thought you'd all be traveling. Uh, everybody doing okay? Yeah? Excited to be here? See some new faces. Welcome. Well, we are still in the book of Philippians, and we are tiptoeing into chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And as I mentioned last week, up to this point, Paul has been doing a lot of talking about himself and his struggles. He's talked about the joy he has in his current suffering and the joy he has in the face of an uncertain future. And as we discussed last week, this joy is a supernatural joy. It's a joy that stemmed from treasuring Christ and the advancement of the gospel above everything else, even above his own life. So after framing up his situation and his future inside this gospel reality, Paul shifts gears here in verse 27. He moves from talking about what's going on in his life to urging the Philippians to live out this same gospel in their own lives. Whether I live or die, Paul says, I know that Christ will be magnified in my body. So I may see you again and I may not. 
But either way, this is how you are to live. This is how you fight for joy. And here's the thing about texts like this one. There's probably not a whole lot in here that you haven't heard before. It's just not. This isn't new information, but I can promise you that it's life-changing if we truly put this into practice. Because the simple, clear truths of Scripture are often the most powerful, right? They're often the most challenging. Because it's easy for us to spend endless time arguing about complex, unclear things that are in Scripture, right? In times or new earth, old earth or whatever. I'm trying to pick low-hanging fruit here to not annoy too many people. Because these are things where we're never going to get a concrete answer. And the reality is that if we did, it really wouldn't have much bearing on our daily lives. But if we poured that same time and effort into the simple, clear things we're called to in Scripture, like love your neighbor, like think of others more than yourself, or what our text is getting to today, that you were made to be unified with the body. God created you for community. These truths are life-changing because there's nothing to argue. There's nothing to parse out or that needs clarified about God's call. Just a simple question, do I love my neighbor in action? Not just theoretically, not just verbally. Of course you love them. The Bible says you love them. You have to love them, so you're going to love them. Yeah, I love my neighbor. But do I love them in action? Do I actively think of others more than myself daily? Am I actively seeking unity with the body of Christ? Am I pouring into the community God has brought me into? I love these simple calls to obedience that we find throughout Scripture because they expose our hearts. There's no clarification needed unless we want to like roll like the Pharisees. Who exactly is my neighbor? Right, not, not a good route. The only choice we have is to trust and obey or don't trust or don't obey because we don't trust. Those are our two options. And our actions are not the point. As believers, we know that our actions don't earn God's favor, but our actions are a reflection of our trust in him. They're a reflection of our faith in him. We will either believe that these commandments are given by God so that we might experience life in joy, or we will reject the call of God on our lives. Because we believe that joy will be found elsewhere. Because everybody wants to experience the joy that Jesus promises. But very few are willing to fight for this joy through obedience to his commands. Obedience to his word. That's why the path is narrow. But here's the thing. Our growing in godliness and truth 
not intellectual understanding, but life-transforming, life-giving truth is inseparably connected to our practicing the truth that we know. Not knowing all the truth, but practicing the truth that we know. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you memorize or how long you pray or how much theology you know. If the truth we know does not move us to live out the gospel in our lives, if love and grace and humility are not the overflow of these things, we have missed the point. See, when Paul speaks in the imperative, when he exhorts believers, the point is not to pack our brains with information so that we can pull out Bible verses to address someone else's sin. They're meant to penetrate our hearts and to transform our actions. They're meant to shape us into Christ's likeness. And what Paul is calling the Philippians to in our text today, as I mentioned earlier, is unity. It is gospel partnership, as we talked about several weeks ago. It's one of those simple, clear commands that's throughout Scripture. You were made for community. It's not a suggestion. He's not saying this might help you out some. He's saying this is what it means to be the body of Christ. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. The only way you're going to survive the promised suffering and experience the promised joy of the gospel is by standing firm, by striving side by side with one spirit. So our text this morning, as you saw, is six verses, but we're really going to spend the bulk of our time in verse 27. We're going to hit a little bit on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. But verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And right off the bat, what probably sticks out is this idea of living worthy of the gospel, right? That's a rough phrase. First thing is like fail, right? Living worthy of the gospel. What does this look like? You need to just be better, do better, pray harder, read more scripture. When we think about living worthy of the gospel, it's typically centered on what we do. We come up with this list of do's and don'ts, the rules and tasks, but this phrase, living worthy of the gospel, is really hard to translate from the Greek into English. But it carries a, a very heavy concept that we need to understand if we're going to grasp what Paul is saying here. The Greek verb here, polytuma, literally means to live as citizens. Interesting, right? It was often used in the first century to reference how people were to live as citizens of Rome. So a fuller and wordier translation might be, let your manner of life be worthy of the citizenship that you have as a citizen of the gospel. So it's not just a call to action. It is a proclamation of identity. You are citizens. 
So live a life that reflects your true citizenship. And there are two elements of Roman citizenship that we need to unpack in order to understand what Paul is saying here, right? He's talking to Philippians. First, the ancient city of Philippi was a Roman colony. So their citizenship was Roman citizenship. And Roman citizenship was something that was not taken lightly. People would kill to be Roman citizens. It was a high honor. And it had great benefit. As a Roman citizen, you got to live under Roman protection and Roman law. You were exempt from certain taxes that non-Romans would have to pay. You had a favored position in the empire, status and prestige. You could own land and Rome couldn't take it away. But with that honor came an expected responsibility. As a citizen of Rome with all these benefits, you would commit to protecting your city. You, you commit to living under Roman law. And that land that Rome can't take away was expected to be used to support your city. There was an expectation that if you are given this title of Roman citizen, you would live worthy of that citizenship. So Paul is using this metaphor for his Philippian readers that not only are they citizens of Rome, but they have an even higher citizenship to live for and thus a higher standard. He's saying, live a life worthy of our true identity as citizens of the gospel kingdom. Live a life that reflects and represents the great love we have for the gospel. Which begs the question, when people look at our lives, what does the way we live tell the world about the gospel? What does the way we interact at work or in our homes or among our friends tell the world about our allegiance? What is most valuable to us? The second element of Roman citizenship in Philippi, we need to understand is that as a citizen of a Greco-Roman city-state, your life was entirely wrapped up in the good of that city. <clears throat> a New Testament scholar named James Boyce says, in our day, it's possible to live in a city and feel no attachment at all. A person can be a citizen of a country without participating in its government or public affairs. But that was not possible for a citizen of a Greco-Roman city. The city was his very life, its laws, his very being. Its customs were something of which he was proud. He knew all about it. Then he goes on to say, the city demanded his complete loyalty and he gave it willingly because to him it was the best thing in life. So. We don't have this type of loyalty to the place we live these days, unless maybe you went to AM. They're a weird breed. <laughs> but you can see what Paul's doing here. He's tying this unwavering loyalty they had to the empire and for their city to the gospel. Your ultimate identity is not found in Roman citizenship or American citizenship but in the citizenship of the gospel. 
God's kingdom. Paul is imploring us to live with this kind of passion. In Greek culture, this was known as the virtue of tenacity. An unceasing drive to improve your community and to better your city. To live worthy of your citizenship. And we are citizens of the gospel. Can you imagine what what church would look like if we had the same tenacity for the body of Christ? The same honor and respect for the eternal gift of citizenship in God's kingdom. Can you imagine the impact we would we would have if scholars one day talked about Christians in the same way that James Boyce wrote about Roman life? The gospel demanded our complete loyalty, and we gave it willingly. Because to us, it was the best thing in life. This is what Paul was calling the Philippians into. And when we understand that living a life worthy of the gospel isn't just an individual battle cry to live better, but a call to a tenacious desire for the good of God's kingdom, for the good of the body, it makes a lot more sense how Paul can flow right into saying, stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The way we live worthy lives as citizens of the gospel is by standing firm in one spirit, by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm and striving. And both of these verbs carry with them this Roman virtue of tenacity and love for their city. But they're also steeped in the culture of Philippi. Philippi was actually set up as a military colony in 42 BC. So they had this rich military history. And both of these verbs, they carry with them these military overtones, standing firm, striving side by side. When you talk about standing firm in one spirit, it brings to mind this unbreakable bond of soldiers, right? Who doesn't like watching war movies? I do. I love Navy SEAL movies. I love to watch their training that they go through. They're put through some of the most horrible situations that you could imagine in a lot that you never would have imagined so that they'll be prepared for battle. And one of my favorite images from SEAL training is when they're taken out to the beach, typically in the freezing cold, often at night, and they have to lock arms in the middle of the crashing waves. You've seen that, right? It's crazy. So they're sleep deprived, they're exhausted, they're hungry, they're freezing, using all of their power to just cling to the person next to them so that they're not swept away. It's a beautiful picture of the unity Paul is calling us towards. They are physically and emotionally exhausted. The conditions are atrocious, they're dangerous. Right? If that person on the end lets go, they will be swept away. It's a vivid picture of standing together in one spirit, as one unified people. And standing firm in this way is far from passive. You may not be moving a lot, 
but you have the winds and the waves and it's freezing. You're just trying to stand. But to just stand firm in the midst of all of that requires every ounce of physical and mental strength. But that's not enough. It also requires all of those people around you. It would be impossible to stand on your own. It's an active, united struggle as one. When one person slips or loses their balance, the others pull them back to firm footing. You see, those 50 people on their own against the ocean would be 50 people who were swept away. But together, they're able to stand firm. It's a, a powerful picture of Paul's call on the church. So when he says standing firm in one spirit, he's calling us to live out our faith with this same tenacity. Caring as much for those struggling alongside us as we do for ourselves. Because we know that we cannot survive on our own. And neither can they. But the waves that we face are not from the ocean. They're from the world. They're from our flesh. The constant pressure of materialism and individualism and pride and lust and jealousy are constantly beating against us. And on our own, we will be swept away. Even the most disciplined people lose their footing at times. And the waves of the world are always there to sweep us off our feet. If we're not actively engaged and standing firm together in one spirit, then we're the fool that walks out into the ocean during a hurricane to go body surfing, right? Fool. You may catch two or three waves. You may have a lot of fun a few times, but you will eventually die. That's how it works. So Paul calls us to stand firm in one spirit. And second, he says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And this Greek word for striving side by side is rarely seen in the Bible, but it was regularly used in the first century. If you watch the movie Gladiator, right, you see the theme here? Right. The movie Gladiator, I'm not suggesting it because it's rated R, but if you happen to have seen it, been forced to, um, when all the slaves are put into the Colosseum and chained together to fight whatever comes out of the gates. This is the verb that they use to describe that. Those slaves were striving side by side. They were contending together. And this is kind of why understanding culture is so important when it comes to interpretation. Because when we hear the term striving side by side, we may think about like a communal work day. Um, we may think about like cleaning up after Harvey, which great things. In our 21st century English, we are striving side by side. But when the Philippians read these words, when they heard striving side by side, they would have immediately thought of the Colosseum. They would have thought about men being sent out into an open arena to fight for their very lives. They would have heard Maximus Aurelius saying, whatever comes out of those gates, we're better if we stick together. It's the only way that we're going to survive. 
And Paul says to us, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Your life and the life of those around you are inseparably connected. You are literally chained together for the sake of the gospel. So, do we see our participation in the body of Christ like that? Right, the Colosseum? Are we standing firm together as if our lives depended on it? Are we striving side by side for the gospel as citizens of God's eternal kingdom? I mean, we get this on a cerebral level. We understand that we need Christian community. But this is one of those areas where many believers just kind of like stick their head in the sand. Act as though this part of scripture doesn't really apply to me. Because I had a bad experience at church once. Right? Said everyone. I was hurt by a fellow Christian. Said everyone. I just like my privacy. You're an American. Right? I talked to enough people to know everybody struggles. Maybe a newsflash. Everyone struggles. Everyone has pain. Everyone has doubt. Everyone feels like they don't belong at times. It's not just you. And more often than not, these feelings drive them further from the community rather than towards it. They're like the person at the end of that chain of soldiers out in the waves. And when things get hard, they think they have a better chance letting go. Rather than moving into the center where they have people on both sides. They still want to hear from God. They want to survive this life. But they think they can go it alone. They think they can neglect the simple truth that God made us for community, but still then experience the joy. All the while neglecting the fact that one of the main ways God speaks to us is through the fellowship of believers. And it's not just how he speaks, it's how he matures us and protects us and encourages us. Paul's not saying, hey, why don't you give unity a shot? He's saying, this is how you survive the constant advancing of the enemy. This is how you will withstand the pressures of the world. This is how you fight for joy. The life and the health of the entire body is affected by every single member. If one is struggling, the integrity of the whole is in danger. If you're not willing to pour yourself into gospel partnership, into the unity of faith Paul is calling us to here, the reality is that you're not just hurting yourself. You're hurting the community. Your heightened concern for yourself or your comfort equates to a disregard of the body of Christ and a lack of care for the advancement of the gospel. And this isn't an isolated problem. When we pick and choose what parts of Scripture we're going to be obedient to, we end up with a very dysfunctional view of faithfulness. And the net result is that we often find ourselves neglecting simple truths that we know. 
refusing to love our neighbors because they're not like us. Refusing to show grace because, well, they don't really deserve it. Refusing to seek unity because it requires us to be vulnerable. We don't have time for the long road of obedience to the gospel. We like new, we like flashy, something that grabs our attention, something that allows us to engage when we feel like it. If we are going to be a church that grows in truth, it is imperative that we continue to be a church that practices the truth, not just a church that talks about it. A people who live worthy lives, lives worthy of our identity as citizens of the gospel, struggling side by side for the faith. Paul is pointing us to this reality that a life of faith cannot happen in isolation. Individualism and Christianity will always be at odds because the gospel is not about you and it's not about me. It's about a people. It's about a kingdom. It's about the gathering of an eternal family from every tribe and every tongue and every nation for his glory. And Paul drives this charge home in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, right? If you've experienced the gospel in any way whatsoever, no matter how small, if you proclaim to know Jesus Christ and love him at all, then he says, here's what I want you to do. Complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. That's strong, Paul. Because his ultimate joy flowed from the gospel. And what he's saying in this text is that the gospel will flourish when we as believers stand firm in one spirit. When we contend together for the gospel. When we orient our lives around the gospel vision we have been called into and united for. It doesn't happen because you prayed a prayer at Bible camp doesn't happen because you attend a weekly service. We have to fight for this joy daily with tenacity, struggling together for gospel transformation in our community because we are citizens of the gospel, citizens of the kingdom of God. And the call of this citizenship is to die to ourselves daily to live for God's plan of redemption in the world. So we go back to the question, where is our allegiance? What kingdom are we proclaiming and supporting and representing with our lives? And it's, it's not a question we can answer with words. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's a question that must be answered with our lives and our hearts. 
if we're not striving together as one body to live out the truth that we know, then we are not living lives worthy of the gospel. We may wear Christian t-shirts, hang out with Christian friends, listen to Christian radio, but we're not living as citizens of the kingdom. We're not living as a people who have been transformed by the gospel. So, big question. How do we live this reality as a unified gospel advancing people? How do we live inside this truth that we have in allegiance to something greater than this world? Stand firm in one spirit. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Live a life that is worthy of your true identity as citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can tell you without any hesitation that I have never seen a church more unified in love and action than this one. I am constantly humbled to just be a part of what God is doing here each and every day. But the waves of life will never stop crashing down on this community. They'll never stop. We can never let down our guard. We must continue through the power of the Holy Spirit to stand firm and strive side by side with our eyes fixed on Jesus as we look for people who are caught in the current alone, who we can pull into the safety of this family through the saving work of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the simplicity of your call on our lives and for sending your spirit to help us walk in obedience to that call. God, make us a faithful people. Make us a people unified in you. God, let us experience your joy as we stand firm in one spirit, as we strive side by side for the gospel so that your name might be glorified in all the earth. Amen. Praise God from Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.